You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you as always, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, looking forward to today's discussion. And uh, for our listeners, we're going to take a little bit of a uh, step back from the more granular conversations about specific topics that we have in Asia and reflect on the fundamental currency of um, of geopolitics in Asia, which is power. Um, so the Lowy Institute, an Australia-based think tank, um, just recently, just this week, released a very interesting new product um, that you can go check out on their website. It's called the uh, Asia Power Index. And effectively, what they've tried to do is create a one-stop portal that allows you to compare the relative power and the absolute power of 25 Asian countries. Um, now, this is an interesting project. As far as I know, this is the most granular attempt to do this in the public domain. Um, certainly, there have been previous attempts in less friendly ways and kind of academic textual ways, but this is a very interactive tool. Um, and what they've done is they've broken um, measures of power across these 25 Asian countries into eight fundamental measures. Uh, these include economic resources of a country, the military capabilities, resilience, which means the ability to withstand shocks, future trends in the countries, their diplomatic influence, their economic relationships, defense networks, and their cultural influence. And across these eight measures, there are 114 indicators. So this is quite granular. Um, and effectively, um, these countries have been ranked uh, along each of these measures. Um, and there's some interesting findings. So I'll just go over quickly the top level findings, and then Prashant, we can get into some of the more um, interesting findings um, in the report. Um, so. No surprise, but the United States uh, continues to remain the preeminent power in Asia. Uh, America, for all intents and purposes, is an Asian power, and the Lowy Index finds that the U.S. is still the top dog in the game despite a rising China. But speaking of China, the China is the emerging superpower in Asia, and it's rapidly closing in on the United States. So, so far, so good. That's mostly conventional wisdom there. Um, secondly, uh, both Japan and India are um, classified as major powers, a rung below China and the United States here. Um, and they're both on separate trajectories. Japan is uh, declining along many measures, but India is quite clearly rising and is described here as a giant of the future in Asia. Um, now, the Lowy um, report here alleges that North Korea, Russia, and Taiwan are so-called misfit middle powers in Asia. We can talk a bit about each of those countries and how they sort of uh, come out in a lot of these rankings. And then finally, Singapore, Australia, and South Korea are notable overperformers um, in, in the Asian region. So uh, they have this very interesting ranking here looking at countries that um, punch above their weight and punch far below their weight. Um, so Prashant, uh, you know, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Um, what's your general impression of the way uh, you know they decided to to do this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, the way you framed it is exactly right, which is that um, if you look at some of the main observations and conclusions that came out of it, you know, such as you know they they classify the United States and China as superpowers, Japan and India as major powers, and the, the actual measures themselves are, are not entirely surprising. I think most folks would agree with that. Um, the strengths of the index lie in uh, the things that you emphasized, you know, the granularity of it. Um, I think they have like, you know, 114 14 sub indicators and eight measures of power. And they not only look at capabilities, but they also divide it um, accordingly by resources and influence. So I, I think that's key because what you're what they're doing essentially is saying, you know, it's not only important what countries have; it's also how they how they use that. 
Um, and I, I thought um, the the sort of underachiever, overachiever um, sort of categorization was, was quite useful in terms of figuring out, you know, which countries are doing more uh, with less and which countries are unfortunately not able to do that. Um, so I, I think those are the, the chief strengths of the index. Um, I would say, um, you know, one other thing that um, would I would I would sort of emphasize is the fact that you pointed this out too. I mean, this is an interactive tool, and I think it, that's relative to some of the other categorizations where you have measures of power, but it's something which are you know it's collated and collected by an organization, and you just sort of consume it. Here, um, they're quite transparent about the fact that um, in the index, they're wait, waiting several of these these different measures one way, but you can actually go into the tool and you can adjust the different measures and see whether, you know, you might have a different take on it. For example, you might think, you know, economic resources or military power matter much more significantly than cultural influence. Well, you can go in there and measure it and see how these countries sort of evolve in terms of their power and capabilities. So mm -hmm. I, I think those are the chief strengths um, of the index. I, I think one of the other things that, you know, maybe we can get into a bit of a discussion about is, you know, the initial reactions from these countries have been really interesting. Yeah. Um, and from the from the Southeast Asian perspective, for example, um, the, the Indonesians were, um, you know, pretty, it, it got a lot of headlines in Indonesia saying that, you know, oh, Singapore and Malaysia are much more powerful or capable than us, according to this index, where, you know, most, most folks would think, oh, Indonesia is automatically the country that's the most capable. Well, that has to do with how they're measuring uh, power across these um, various indicators. And I think similar reaction in Pakistan, where Pakistan was characterized as an underachiever that certainly got a, a lot of headlines in the media. Um, but I guess we should talk about some of these uh, major actors too. And, and you attended the launch event and you asked about um, Japan as a, as a major example. That's kind of another interesting example. So maybe we can talk about the other sort of major powers and superpower examples too. Yeah, I mean, uh, the you know, Japan is the big overachiever um, per this index. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I should also say that, you know, when we're talking about what power means in the context of this index, I really like that they take a very holistic approach here. It's not a, you know, international relations realist take on powers, you know, mm -hmm. it's the balance of kind of military capabilities and who would triumph in a military conflict. It's a it's a far broader, more holistic take. Um, the Yeah, so, you know, Japan's ranking as an overachiever really struck me because, um, you know, I was in uh, Tokyo a few months ago talking about you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy, the future of uh, Asian order. And in Tokyo, I mean, there is a real sense of fatalism among, you know, bureaucrats and strategists. They recognize the country's um, demographic challenge, which is one of the sources of absolute decline in Japan. Japan will have a significantly smaller population uh, by 2050. And, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out how they can um, stay atop their game as one of Asia's preeminent major powers. Um, but this index really, um, you know, I think, I think projects at least now, uh, coming up on 2020, a, a still a very favorable position for Japan. I mean, given how much of an overachiever Japan is today, it would have to fall quite a bit to get to the point where it was actually punching below its weight. And, you know, I think this is a, to the credit of um, really, you know, a two generations of Japanese leadership, at least. Um, Japan, for instance, despite its 
um it's hamstrung you know offensive military japan still has a very capable military but um you know it's it's been thinking creatively and asymmetrically about how to leverage economic power for instance we all talk about china's belt and road initiative today but we forget that japan really wrote the book on using overseas assistance for mm-hmm. um the geopolitical ends and and ways to build influence i mean even if you look at you know you look at a country like the philippines where uh you know japanese investment is actually uh, 20 times greater than chinese investment yet all the headlines these days talk about how you know duterte is being pulled into China's orbit. Um, so Japan really, uh, you know, does um, is kind of the quiet overperformer. I think this index reflects that well. Um, so, you know, before I pass it back to you, um, one other thing that really struck out to me that comes out in this Asia Power Index ranking is that nuclear weapons do not pay. Um, mm. That every country that possesses nuclear weapons in Asia is ranked an underachiever, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so Russia and North Korea are the particular underachievers, uh, which is I think fascinating in itself, given that Russia is a nuclear superpower, uh, has uh, literally thousands of nuclear warheads, um, and North Korea, obviously, we all know how um, they've been investing in nuclear capabilities as well. But also China, Pakistan, and India, uh, all underachievers um, on the military front, and you know. Um, conversely, it really seems like, you know, economic might really pays off. I mean, Singapore, Australia, South Korea, even Malaysia and Thailand, um, those latter two you wouldn't commonly maybe think of as uh, overachieving powers in Asia. Uh, but really, you know, the story being told here um, is that, you know, raw military power, um, raw investment in both conventional and nuclear capabilities is not what really makes um, a 21st century power. Um, there is uh, there is a lot more to that, and you know we can debate obviously the value of that because uh, you know assuming that the regional security architecture completely breaks down, the liberal international order, so-called liberal international order, completely evaporates, and we return to a sort of you know Hobbesian world of um, each country relying on a logic of self-help. Then obviously I think the calculus changes, and whoever's got the most guns will come out on top. Uh, but certainly given the uh, the the economic and uh, political order that exists today in Asia, um, I think this index reflects quite well that there's more to power than just um, military capabilities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the point you made about Japan is is particularly important because I think uh, if you look, if you zoom out and sort of from that realist perspective that you mentioned, you just look at capabilities, you might see, you know, out 30, 40 years, Japan as a declining power. But it's also true that the Japanese uh, have, you know, more experience than most powers in terms of, you know, doing more with less. I mean, they've had to adjust to the various constraints that you mentioned. And so if there's any country that's able to handle uh, that dynamic going forward, it's going to be Japan. And I think the other key factor here that I found really interesting was, I mean, there is a separate categorization for defense networks. And Japan and the United States uh, fare quite strongly there. And China doesn't fare too well. Um, although I, I guess this this kind of gets to um, uh, one of the issues with the index, right? So the defense networks, the way that they're characterized in the report is that they're mostly formal defense networks. And I think if, if you were to ask the Chinese and kind of push them to sort of elaborate, they would say that, well, we don't have formal alliances and partnerships, but we're actually, you know, we, we have these things called, you know, strategic partnerships or comprehensive strategic partnerships, which actually reflect uh, some of these dynamics because we think that these alliances are, you know, Cold War relics. So I think there, there are some definitional issues there. It's similar with um, this, there's a measure for future trends, right? And, you know, what's included in that basket of future trends, I suspect, um, may be different over time, which gets to 
I, I think another value of this Asia Power Index, where, which the authors have tried to emphasize, you know, for all the, you know, contemporary conversation about who's ranking more and, you know, the, it's sort of a measuring contest. The real value of this is, I mean, if you keep doing this index over time, you know, for the next, you know, four or five, six years, this could really be a continuous part of the conversation as Asia evolves, right? right? And that's a conversation that's not only about capability, but but as you noted, it's about it's about intentions, you know, it's about will, and it's about the broader geopolitical context that's evolving, you know, including right before our eyes with the Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the categories that really jumps out to me is the future trends category. Um, China <laughs> scores incredibly well. So this is scored out of 100 uh, for listeners that aren't looking at the report right now. But China gets an 83 out of 100. The United States gets a 60 out of 100, decent performance. India gets 55. And it's a precipitous drop from there. So apart from China, the United States and India, really every other country in Asia, beginning with Indonesia downwards, you know, Indonesia starts at 11.7 out of 100. And then <laughs> it just kind of falls off. So really, I mean, the future prospects for every other country <laughs> to be quite negative and you know maybe um you know maybe i'd quibble with some of the rankings there for um you know some of the populous southeast asian countries for instance um but yeah. really i think it tells you about uh you know these um you know these maybe quasi balancing coalitions that we hear about you know be it the principal security network or the quadrilateral initiative um and you know the, uh, all the concern about china if you look at this um index and you you know you take some of these uh, quantifications of chinese power and then across categories, you know, you combine sort of Japan, India, Australia, and the United States into a category, and you sort of start to recognize, you know, why this logic of balancing um, is is so alluring to these powers. I mean, even if you just look at the overall power ranking, it's actually quite striking that, you know, uh, India and Japan are almost uh, neck and neck when it comes to their power ranking. And you put the two of them together, they, they basically come up to what the United States is rated for. Um, and just, you know, that's just a hair above where China is today. So it is yep. interesting that, you know, these countries um, uh, that, you know, between themselves uh, can't really take on a rising China one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But, uh, but, you know, in a, um, in a larger group, in a larger coalition, they find themselves more capable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the other thing that's striking is, you know, the, the gaps uh, between the scores for various countries. I think the, the one that was most striking to me when I initially looked at the report was uh, the gap between China and Japan, right? I mean, the Chinese are at 75, over 75. The Japanese are at 42. That's a huge drop off. And so that, that just sort of kind of stands out to you visually when you look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other one, which, um, you know, some Philippine commentators were, were noticing was the fact that the differential between the Philippines and North Korea is, is just a score of one. I mean, the, the North Koreans are at 11.4. The Philippines are at 12.4. But again, you know, it does go back to the point, you know, what, what you emphasize, because if you look at the North Koreans and you look at the um, the individual measures and components, um, it's basically just, you know, the fact that they have military capabilities that are quite advanced and everything else is basically almost flatlining. Right, right. <laughs> so it, it really does, um, the, the index really does strikingly demonstrate um, the various components of power and how they can be very radically different for certain countries over others. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's actually a really fascinating point, the North Korea-Philippines comparison. Uh, North Korea is a very good example of a country that has put everything in one basket, right? Mm -hmm. It has huge conventional forces, um, over over a million um uh, you know, can be called to a um, to the battlefield in the in the event of a war on the Korean Peninsula. They have nuclear capabilities, um, uh, you know, and they sustain a massively expensive, um, you know, uh, 
a military. Um, in the meantime, you know, the Philippines generally across the index, um, you know, it's not an outstanding performer along any single axis of power, but effectively it's, it's quite balanced. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's doing, it's doing moderately well across it. It, it certainly stands out as a middle power. Um, but really, you know, that kind of comparison, I think really shows the importance of this holistic measure. So I guess the message for the Philippines isn't that, um, you know, the 12.4 score is something to be ashamed of, I mean, especially given the ranking next to North Korea, but that, yeah, I mean, you know, the Philippines military capabilities, for example, mm -hmm. um, are, you know, it definitely punches far below its weight, especially when you look at, you know, the, the security challenges it faces, the size of its population. Um, it's really, uh, you know, that's, that's really an area where um, Manila could make more investments. That's something, you know, you and I talk about a lot when it comes to issues like the South China Sea and uh, terrorism in Southeast Asia, just the Philippines, um, absolute need to invest more in its uh, military capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it, it it's also important to mention, I, I think um, at, at the launch event, this was uh, touched on as well, right? Um, mm -hmm. The fact that, I mean, this is kind of an initial project. Um, it's taken a few years to come into fruition, but this initial iteration of the index is covering 25 countries. But, you know, there is a potential to, you know, potentially depending on how they cut it and choose to move forward, there is a potential to expand this beyond the, the, the current countries that are there, uh, even though there's quite a representative sample of countries. I think we, we have a ranking that goes from, you know, superpowers to major powers to middle powers to, to minor powers. Um, but it, it did uh, strike me as interesting that the categorization for middle powers uh, comprised many countries in the index, and there was a lot of variation in that uh, category. Whereas for superpowers and major powers, it's just you know two countries each, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting things that you you can think about is as we get to 2030 or or out further. I mean, will we actually get some of these middle powers graduating to a class of, of major powers? And will we see some differences or shifts in that capability or, or will the scores just kind of change over time? I mean, that's kind of an interesting uh, sort of thing to think about, given the fact that there there is that sort of imbalance in how these categories are being weighted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I mean, um, you know, like thinking forward to 2050. It, it broadly seems like these rankings, um, you know, will tend to hold uh, with the exception mm -hmm. of, um, you know, countries like Japan, right. uh, maybe even South Korea, which will also see its own demographic decline. Um, and then, you know, I mean, we have the potential of, uh, you know, um, like we don't know what's going to happen with this Trump-Kim summit. Maybe North Korea does decide to pursue a Vietnam-style economic modernization project. What does that do to mm -hmm. North Korea's power ranking uh, yep. if, it, if it retains its nuclear weapons by 2050? Um, you know, that's an interesting question to ponder. Um, but certainly I think this is really useful in, in terms of how we, uh, you know, how we think about um, the future of Asian geopolitics broadly. Um, it really helps to kind of see all of these categories uh, side by side. Uh, so for listeners, you know, I mean, I really do recommend kind of uh, going to the website and playing around with these tools. Even if you disagree vociferously with how they've chosen to rank your country, you can, um, you know, like Prashant said, play around with the numbers and, uh, and see, you know, how, how things can change. For example, what if the Philippines had nuclear weapons? <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's always a, a good way to um, experiment with this tool. Mm -hmm. um, so Prashant, I think we'll uh, leave it there for today. Sounds good. All right. Uh, listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in as always. Um, we'll be back next week with more. Uh, both Prashant and I have taken an interest in the historic Malaysian election results. So I think that'll be our next topic of discussion early next week. So I hope you'll join us to um, to um, 
take stock of that uh, election. Um, so thanks for listening. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes, please do so. Um, and also make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.